We're in the midst of a series focused on the theme of spiritual growth. From the standpoint of the scriptures, we really are just caterpillars longing to become butterflies. But we'll never become the people that we were destined to be until we learn how to grow spiritually. So last week, I said that the single most important thing that you need to know in order to grow may be a doctrine that you've never heard of before, or at the very least, it is the one that you are most likely to take for granted. So we began talking about union with Christ. And here's the basic idea. When you become a Christian, you undergo a transfer of trust. You transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus for your standing, your acceptability before God, and you do that by putting your faith in Jesus. And the point is that faith so unites you to Jesus that everything that is true of him becomes true of you. So I used a famous analogy that Martin Luther first introduced 500 years ago in an essay entitled The Freedom of a Christian. He used the analogy of a bride and a groom. Now normally when a couple gets married, unless there's some kind of prenuptial agreement, everything that belongs to the one belongs to the other. So I asked you to imagine that you've got no money, no job, no apartment, huge amounts of credit card debt and massive student loans, but then you marry someone who's fabulously wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that all that debt is just a drop in the bucket. And so when you get married, what happens? Well, that debt is gone. It's, it's wiped out. It's swallowed up by their riches, and all those riches are yours. But I asked you not to get too excited because this is just a story, but that is the analogy. And in that uh, illustration, Luther suggested that Jesus is the rich, faithful husband And we're just the poor, unfaithful wife. And yet, by the wedding ring of faith, everything that was ours becomes Jesus's. Everything that was Jesus's becomes ours. So Jesus takes our sin, our guilt, our death, and he offers us, he gives us his innocence, his righteousness, his life. It's all ours for the taking. And that is the fountain, that is the spring out of which every other blessing in the Christian life flows. There's no forgiveness, no reconciliation, no change, no transformation, no movement in the Christian life, no mission, no purpose apart from union with Christ. And so now what I'd like us to do today is take a look at one rushing stream that flows from that spring because it's incredibly vital for us to understand it in order for us to grow Last week, I suggested that to be a Christian means that you find your identity in Christ. In other words, rather than trying to create your own identity by trying to find yourself, you discover who you really are by being found in Christ. And that is what the passage that is before us today is all about. So listen to how the Apostle Paul describes himself in this passage from Philippians chapter 3. Let me invite you to open up a Bible to chapter 3. You'll find it on page 981 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading verses 4 through 11. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And therefore, we ask that by your spirit, the same spirit who once inspired these words, you would illuminate them now for us, so that your word would catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the key section to this passage comes in verses 7 through 9. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, we'll never learn how to grow spiritually until we discover our true identity, and we will never understand what Paul means by being found in Christ until we understand this word righteousness, So during our time together today, I'd like us to consider that word, righteousness, by asking what is it, why do we need it, and how do we get it? So first of all, what is it? Now, this word righteousness, it's a big word. It appears all over the scriptures. Almost anywhere where you see the Bible talking about salvation, the word righteousness is going to be near at hand. I'll give you one example a famous passage from Paul's opening letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now hold on to that, because I'm going to come back to that verse at the end of this sermon. But that's a great example Wherever you see the word salvation, you're going to find the word righteousness nearby. But what does this word mean? Now, I think that for most of us, we associate the word righteousness with a negative connotation because we think of self-righteous people. Someone who's self-righteous is someone who's a little smug about their spirituality. They have an excessively high, perhaps an uh, unwarranted opinion of their piety or of their morality. And so as a result of that, we tend to think that righteousness means moral purity. Isn't that right? Most of us think of righteousness as meaning moral purity, but that's not quite right. It's much better to understand righteousness as a relational word. To be righteous means to be in right relationship with another person or with a group. It's more of a legal word than a religious word. It's not about moral purity, it's about being in right relationships. So let me give you a couple examples that could draw this out. The opposite of righteousness, therefore, is not impurity, but rejection. So imagine, for example, a party. Now, people in New York City, they're not too fussy about how you dress. 
It used to be the case that if you had a lot of money, you're supposed to dress the part. You're supposed to wear fancy, expensive clothes, but not anymore. Now it seems like if you have a lot of money, you dress like a slob, right? So you can show up at a restaurant wearing nothing more than sweats and, and sneakers, and then you prove how rich you really are because people still take you in, right? But there's still places in New York or occasions where you're supposed to dress up like a wedding or an especially fine restaurant. And if you are underdressed at a party like that, well, what happens? You start to feel a little nervous. You start to feel a little anxious because everybody's eyes are on you. People are stopping. They're staring. You don't feel right. The problem is you're not right. You're not right with the host. You're not right with the party. All right, that's a, that's a simple, easy example. Let's uh, ratchet it up a little bit. Imagine instead that you're applying for a job. So you send in your resume, you write a cover letter, and then you go in for the job interview. And you're nervous about this because this is a job you really, really want. And you know that now that you've applied for this position, people are scrutinizing you. They're scrutinizing your, your background and your experience. They're checking your references. They're looking your life over. And if they come back to you and they say, sorry, we've decided to go with a different candidate. You weren't the right fit. You start wondering to yourself, well, what's, what's wrong with me? What do they have that I don't have? What did I do wrong? What are my flaws? How could I have done better? But on the other hand, let's say they extend the job to you and they say, of all the hundreds of people that we interviewed for this position, you were far and away the best candidate. You are the right one. Well, how does that make you feel? Welcomed, embraced, favored. See, that's righteousness. You are in the right or perhaps the most risky of all is when you propose for marriage. You, you've been dating someone for a long time, and then you finally summon the courage to ask them to marry you. What if they say no? Ashley and I got engaged here in New York City 23 years ago. I asked Ashley to meet me on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 59th Street, and then we walked into Central Park, and we went up to the boathouse, and we rented a rowboat, and Ashley knew right then that something was up because when we got in the rowboat, one of the oar locks were broken. And Ashley knew Jason would take this boat back to make sure that the oar lock was fixed or he would ask to trade in for a different boat. But no, I decided I was just going to push through. So she knew something was up. We went uh, underneath the bow bridge and then we found a secluded spot. And, and just then I decided I'm going to reach into my pocket, I'm going to pull out the ring, I'm going to drop down on one knee, and I'm going to pop the question. But before I do, Ashley says, wait, stop. And I thought, oh no, she's going to say no. I thought for sure she was going to say yes, but no, she's going to reject me. But no, that wasn't it. Ashley noticed that there was a pool of muddy water on the bottom of the boat, and she was worried that I was going to get my pants all dirty. So she said, wait, stop. But I told her, don't worry, I planned ahead. I brought a change of clothes. So I popped down on that knee and asked that question, and she said yes. But that is perhaps one of the riskiest things we could do, and there's perhaps nothing more painful than someone rejecting a proposal or breaking off an engagement. But the point is that we receive hundreds, thousands of these little verdicts from people in our lives as, as we move through the years, and what we're ultimately looking for is righteousness, to be in right relationship with the people around us. So you see, the opposite of righteousness is not purity, it's rejection. 
And if that's true, well, then the essence of righteousness means to be loved, to be accepted, to find favor in the eyes of another. And that's what we all want. So why do we need it? To bring me to my second question, why do we need righteousness? And I would say the answer is because we simply cannot live without it. We cannot live without righteousness. We can't live with, without someone or something outside of ourselves issuing a verdict that tells us that we're okay, that, that we matter, that we count, that we're significant, that we're secure. We can't live without it. Now, you might be one of those people who says, uh-uh, no, not me. No, I don't need the validation of anybody else. No, I am going to be true to expressing the inner depths of who I really am, regardless of what anybody else thinks. I'm going to express myself. I don't need anybody else. I've got myself. Now, on the one hand, I would say, well, that's good. It's good to be true to yourself rather than capitulating to the desires or the wishes of all the other people around you. But on the other hand, I would say that being true to expressing the inner depths of who you really are only makes sense if what you're choosing to express is something that matters. If you say, I'm going to express the inner depths of who I am, that only makes sense if what you are expressing matters. And that's why we can never escape the opinion of other people. We can't just base our lives on something that's insignificant or trivial. It has to be something that is valued by the world around us or else we would never try to express it. So we, 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 can't, we can't ever escape the, the validation of others, despite what we might think. Even our self-expression is socially conditioned. You might break free of the narrow confines of one particular group. You break free from your family or from some small-town community. That's why you move to New York City and you say, well, I don't need any of them. I'm going to be independent, I'm going to be free, I'm going to be beautiful, I'm going to be accomplished, I'm going to be creative. But they have to think so, whoever they may be. See, all you've really done is you've just switched audiences. You're not trying to prove yourself maybe to that hometown community anymore, but now you're living in front of a different audience. They have to think so. So no one really follows the beat of their own drum. We just switch drummers. We can't escape the need for someone or something outside of us to give us a verdict, to tell us that we matter, that we count, that we're significant, and that we're secure. And therefore, we cannot live without some kind of righteousness. And what I would suggest is that you could sum up all of sin and salvation in terms of righteousness. So how do you like this? Sin basically means trying to establish a righteousness of your own. Salvation means receiving the righteousness of Christ. Sin is trying to establish a righteousness of your own. Salvation is receiving the righteousness of Christ. And that is what Paul is talking about in this passage. He begins the passage by telling us all the ways that he tried to establish a righteousness of his own. Now, he's writing as a first century Jew, so he emphasizes the things that were important to him in his own day and age, the things that were important within his own culture. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you want to look at someone who has reasons for confidence, you know, someone who really has been successful at establishing a righteousness of one's own, look at me, I had it all. I was from the right family. I had the right background. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But not only did he have the right family or the right background, he did all the right things. He did it by the book. He followed all the right rules. But he didn't just follow all the right rules. He was part of the right club. He was a Pharisee. 
and he proved his zeal by persecuting the early Christian church because at that time, prior to his conversion to Christianity, he saw the early Christian movement as a rival threat to Judaism. So Paul's saying, look, I was successful. I established a righteousness of my own. But he did it in a religious manner. Now, that's an ancient and a religious way of establishing one's righteousness. Let me give you a modern secular way of doing it. So this is how Arthur Miller expresses it in his poem, uh, in his play, excuse me, After the Fall. The protagonist, Quinton, at one point says this. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. And then what a good lover, and then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified, even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is just another way of saying despair. Now, Paul tried to establish a righteousness through religious means, but what Arthur Miller is describing is that we as modern people can try to establish a righteousness for ourselves through secular means, by trying to prove how smart or brave we are or what good parents or good lovers or how wise or, or how powerful. But the point is that throughout our lives, we're looking for some kind of verdict, some kind of validation from outside of us that tells us that we count that we matter. And the presumption is that throughout our lives, most of the time we can assume that we're on some kind of upward trajectory. And if we haven't quite achieved our goals yet, if we haven't met that, that standard of righteousness that we're shooting for, we can console ourselves by saying, well, there's still time. I'm still on the path. I'm making my way. I'm making progress. But you know what a midlife crisis is? A midlife crisis happens when you realize I'm not on my way anymore. Before, you could console yourself by saying, well, I'm not there yet, but I will be soon. But a midlife crisis sinks in when you realize, okay, I'm not where I should be at this point. I, I haven't attained that, that measure of righteousness that I was shooting for, and I don't think I will. I'm not on the path anymore. And that's what leads to despair. The point, though, is that everybody does this. It doesn't matter if you're an ancient person or a modern person. It doesn't matter if you're religious or you're secular. Everybody tries to establish a righteousness of their own. And see, through all the feedback we get, through hundreds, thousands of people down through the years, we, we create in our mind that, that standard of righteousness that is going to be the key to our fulfillment and the source of our identity. And that standard operates in the background of everything we think and do. If we violate that standard, that's when we feel guilty. If we fail to live up to that standard, that's when we experience shame. And if we give up on the standard altogether and we say it's too late, well, that's what leads to despair. You see, we're all trying to establish a righteousness of our own. But the heart of the Christian message is that the true righteousness we need is not something that we can achieve. It's something that we can only receive by grace. And that's what Paul eventually came to realize. You know, the worst thing that could probably ever happen to you is that you attain the righteousness that you're seeking. 
Because then you can be fooled into thinking that that's what's going to truly make you happy or fulfilled. Thankfully, Paul came to the end of his rope and realized that despite everything that he had accomplished, despite this confidence that he had in himself, despite this righteousness that he had attained, it was nothing. Everything that he thought he had gained, he came to see was a loss. And so he considered the righteousness of his own as rubbish, as garbage, as literally excrement compared to the righteousness of Christ. The word that he uses there is translated as dung in the King James Version. It's just excrement compared to the righteousness of Christ. You see, what Paul came to see is that everything that he thought he was doing in order to establish his identity and his worth, everything that he thought was bringing him closer and closer to God was in fact leading him farther and farther away from God. Everything that he thought was making him more holy was in fact making him more lost. And everything that he thought was going to lead to his acceptance eventually led to his rejection. And so he says, now the tables have been turned. Everything that I considered a gain, I now consider a loss. I once considered that righteousness of my own to be everything, but now that I see it's just a pile of crap compared to the righteousness of Christ. I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. Don't read a sanitized Bible. Read it in the Greek. See, the only righteousness that counts and the only righteousness that lasts, the only righteousness that works is the one that we receive from Christ as a gift. See, this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that you do not try to create your own identity by finding yourself but rather you discover who you really are by being found, by being found in Christ. It's not based on a righteousness of your own. No, it is based on the righteousness of Christ which you receive. And so how do you get it? How do you get this righteousness? By faith. And faith doesn't add or contribute anything to our righteousness. No, we're out of that game. We're not trying to establish our own righteousness through our works. No, faith is simply empty hands. Empty hands which receive what Christ gives. And what Christ gives us is himself, all of himself. He gives us all. And so that brings me back to this analogy of the bride and the groom. When faith comes between us, When we are united to Jesus by the wedding ring of faith, then then everything that is his becomes ours and everything that is ours becomes his. Faith so unites you to Jesus that everything that belongs to him now belongs to you. And this really is the heart. This is the essence of the Christian faith. When you get that, when the penny drops, that's when everything else clicks and falls into place. And without it, without this, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. You see, a Christian is someone who knows that God accepts me, he favors me, he showers his love and approval upon me, not because of who who I am or what I've done, but solely because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. It all comes through what Luther called this divine exchange, this wonderful exchange, where Jesus takes what is ours and gives us what is his. And Paul sums up this wonderful exchange in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us 
so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what happens through this union is that God treats Jesus as if he had lived your life with all of your rebellion and all your failure and he dies on the cross in your place. But then God treats you as if you had lived Jesus' life with all of his spotless perfection and obedience. In other words, God doesn't treat you according to what your record deserves. No, he treats you according to what Jesus' perfect record deserves. And that's what changes everything. Now, what I'd like to do before we close is just tease out some of the implications of what it means to receive this righteousness from Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, the pastor and the theologian, has said that almost all of our problems in the Christian life can be traced back to a mistaken or an inadequate understanding of what it means to be found in Christ and to receive his righteousness. If you're not sure where you stand in your relationship with God, if your concern for other people has diminished, if your sense of God's goodness and your grace has dried up in your life, chances are it's because you have lost sight. You've lost sight of what it means to be found in Christ and to receive a righteousness that is not your own. So in order to hold this up before our eyes, to cherish it for what it is, I want to give you three images for what this righteousness is. It is, first of all, a verdict. Second of all, it is a status. And thirdly, it is a gift. The righteousness of Christ, first and foremost, is a verdict. Now, I said at the very beginning, the word righteousness is a relational word. It means that you are in right relationship with God. It's borrowed from the world of law. To be declared in the right means that the verdict of the last day has now broken into the present. Do you realize that that's what we're talking about? When you stand before God, as we all will, he will issue a verdict. But the point is that if you're united to Jesus, you already know what the verdict will be. The verdict of the last day is now present and operative in your life. He is going to declare you innocent, righteous, in right relationship. He's going to acquit you. And therefore, you can have 100% confidence here and now, today, what he will say to you then. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that is the verdict that he is singing over you even now, even today. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, as we look back over our lives and we consider all those other verdicts that we receive from other people, they might hurt. All that other rejection that we might have experienced in life. You didn't fit in with that group. You got kicked out of that party. You didn't get the job. You were rejected by the person that you loved the most. That hurts. That is painful. That pain is real. But the point is that if you have this verdict operating in your life, none of that matters. If the God of the universe, the one who made this, this whole world and who loves you, says you matter, you're important, you count, you're valued by me, then it doesn't matter what anybody else says. That's the only verdict that counts. That's the only verdict that matters. If God says you're valuable, you are. If he says you're loved, you are. If he says you're important, you are. That's the verdict that matters most. That's what we have to take into the center of our being. That's what it means to be found in Christ. Not with a righteousness of our own, but with the righteousness we freely receive from his hand. But secondly, this righteousness is not only a verdict, it's a status. 
When God puts you in right relationship with himself, you receive a status that doesn't fluctuate or change. It is fixed because it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon what Jesus has already accomplished for you. So it, it doesn't move. It doesn't fluctuate. Your position in God's eyes doesn't change. Now, you could be more or less like Jesus in this life to the extent that you allow the Spirit to operate and change you from the inside out. But your position in God's eyes, your righteousness doesn't move. It doesn't change. It stays exactly the same because you cannot be more or less united to Jesus. That's why last week I said that union with Christ is like marriage. You're either married or you're not. You can't be a little bit married. And so it is with Jesus. If you put your faith in him, you're either united to him or not. You can't be a little bit united to him. When you put your faith in him, you are connected to him 100%. You are as united to Jesus as he is to the Father. And the implications of this are really astounding. Some people will summarize this teaching by saying that when God puts you in right relationship with himself, when he justifies you, which is another way of saying it, then God treats you just as if you had never sinned. Have you heard that before? When God justifies you, he treats you just as if you had never sinned. But that is only half right. It's only half right. It's not as if God simply says, well, I'm not going to hold the past against you anymore and everything that you've done, and I'm going to bring you back to zero. No, he's not merely treating you as if you hadn't done anything wrong. He's also treating you as if you had done everything right. He's not just treating you as if you hadn't rebelled against him, but he's treating you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect life. He showers as much love and acceptance upon you as you are united to Jesus, and that is 100%. So my former mentor who passed away on Friday, Tim Keller, he once put it like this. He put it in a very New York kind of image. He said, it's not like God just lets you off the hook and tells you you can go. It's more like God gives you the Congressional Medal of Honor and keys to the city and then throws a ticker tape parade for you down Fifth Avenue. You've got job offers coming out your ears and infinite gift certificates to Bloomingdale's. You see, it's not just that he wipes out the past, but he treats you as if you had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. And that is your fixed status in his eyes. It doesn't change. He showers as much love and acceptance upon you to the degree that you are united to Jesus, and that is 100%. But then finally, this is a gift. This righteousness is a gift. Now, Martin Luther initially hated this word righteousness. He hated it because he thought, righteous, he thought of righteousness in terms of moral purity. And, and he said, I, I hate the idea of righteousness because that means that I'm never going to be enough. I'm never, never going to be pure enough to win God's love and approval. And so he just beat upon Romans chapter 1. He was trying to understand what the Apostle Paul was saying about the righteousness of God. And then he finally came to realize that the righteousness of God is not a demand from us, but rather a gift that he extends to us, which we simply receive by faith. And so this is how Luther described his realization. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and especially Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which I read earlier. 
And nothing stood in the way except that one expression, the righteousness of God. For I hated that word righteousness because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered this until at last, by the mercy of God, I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. And here I felt myself to be altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. The righteousness of Christ is a sheer gift. Luther liked to refer to it as passive righteousness because there's nothing that we can do to win it, to earn it, to achieve it. It's a gift. He also called it alien righteousness, meaning that it comes from outside of us into our lives. We have nothing to do with it. And that's important for us to realize because sometimes when people get a sense that their righteousness that they're trying to establish for themselves is not going to work, it's not going to cut it, they might start to think that, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to become more religious than ever. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to become an even better Christian. But what they don't realize is what they're doing is they're still trying to establish their own righteousness, but now they're just using Christianity to do it. You're not a Christian until you finally let go and stop trying to accomplish a righteousness for yourself, whether through a religious means or a secular means, and you finally find yourself in Christ because the righteousness that you receive purely from him, a passive righteousness, an alien righteousness that you have nothing to do with. And only then when you realize that your standing, your acceptability, your favor before God's eyes is based solidly on Christ and nothing else, that's when you'll begin to grow. Now, Luther said that this righteousness is a mystery that the world around us can't understand because it runs against the grain of how everything in life works. We, we think that we have to, to pay for what we get. Whatever we have, we have to achieve. And Luther said, it's not just the world around us, it's Christians too. We don't understand this either. And so we need to continually teach this truth. We need to remind ourselves of it. We need to beat it into our heads. We need, we, we need to work it into the center of our life and our identity. Because the biggest problem in our lives is we don't know how to utilize this righteousness. We don't know how to apply it to our lives. And if we did, well, we would not be in nearly as much trouble as we often are. All of the problems that we experience in the Christian life can be traced back to an inadequate or mistaken understanding of what it means to receive a righteousness of Christ by faith. So as we come to this table, celebrate your union with Jesus. Know that by simple faith, by receiving him with empty hands, you are as united to him as you will ever be. And all the love, all the favor, all the acceptance that you will ever need is already found in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that so much of the time, we are looking for that, that validation, that affirmation coming from the outside.
to tell us that we matter, that we count, that we're significant, that we're secure. But the only righteousness we need is the one that you freely offer us. So we pray that you would help us to receive it by faith and to learn to stand on it, to remind ourselves of it, to to make it the center of our life and our identity so that we might truly grow into the people that you have always destined us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.